Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, hotels where guests can expect a relaxed, warm and welcoming atmosphere. You can get that from this podcast too, in fact. An exceptional experience awaits at the resident city centre locations and from this Whitehall Sources podcast, which starts now. Someone who seeks to avoid tax can't also be in charge of tax. More information, including a statement... Including a statement by the Minister Without Portfolio has entered the public domain, which is why it's right that we do establish the facts. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. We are recording on Thursday the 26th of January. I'm Callum MacDonald, also here, Kirsty Buchanan, former Special Advisor to Theresa May. Hello, Kirsty. Greetings to you. And also Frankie Leach, former advisor to Jeremy Corbyn when he was leader of the opposition for Labour. Hello, Frankie. And you will notice that Frankie sounds extra specially brilliant today. Uh, I was running around London like a moron yesterday, collecting the microphone from Oscar from Whitehall Sources 1.0, you'll remember him, and uh, and dropping it off at the very swanky Guild Hall to Frankie yeah. Leach. That was a nice where moment. I, yeah, where I am a counsellor, so you, go. you let me know if you ever want a guided tour of the Guild Hall. Oh, thanks, I definitely will. Um, elsewhere yesterday was of course Burns Night, Burn, Burns Day, Burns Night, um, and let's. I'm feeling the burn today. I think it's fair to say. Too much haggis. <laughs> too far. Too much haggis. <laughs> You've got me. Oh uh, last departure from my flat last night was at one thirty in the morning. Um, you know what really makes me laugh, Callum? Go it's on. Like- you, I love how proud you are of the fact that someone left your house at 1.30. In my head, when you told me this morning, I was thinking that you've been up till 6am, <laughs> oh, no. whiskey, but no, the latest departure, half past one, half ladies past and gentlemen. One. Was... And, I'm, and I'm guessing that mine and Frankie's invites were what lost in the post. Well, it... yeah. <laughs> don't, don't do this to me. It was a work thing. It was work. Mm-hmm. It was... It's not work. <laughs> it was t- this is fun. We all know this is fun. It was a Times Radio colleagues event. It was a work event, Kirsty. So, not what... a party. <laughs> not a party. <laughs> work right, okay. What I will say is I'm planning a, 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 a summer event um, around, well, I'll be honest, around my 21st, no, my 30th birthday. And your names are very firmly on that list. So, Yay. well, I'll have to check my diary. Okay. Well, <laughs> you check away. Anyway, so there we are. So, uh, yes, I, as I look across my, across my living room, the coffee table is still filled with uh, an empty whiskey bottle, empty glasses, a Boots Advantage card. <laughs> There's definitely not a Boots Advantage card. Anyway, welcome to Whitehall Sources. It's great to have you there. Uh, let's start this episode uh, with a little hello to our latest sign-ups 
to the Whitehall Sources mailing list. Uh, thank you for doing this. Just go to whitehallsources.com forward slash mailing list. Sign up to make sure that you get email uh, updates as we go forward from here. There won't be any in the immediate now, but you need to be on the list so that you're, you're ready. So hello to Lauren Botha, Michael Bennett, Tim Grindell, Doug White, Alan Ball, David Orr, Goodness me, look at all these brilliant people who have signed up since last week. We love that. Thank you. Uh, go to whitehallsources.com forward slash mailing list. Just pop in your name and your email address. Uh, we'll get you on the mailing list and we will keep in touch. If you are brand new to the podcast, welcome. What we do here is take you behind the scenes of politics today. We hear from Kirsty and Frank. We hear their stories, their experiences and their insights to help us understand what is happening right now. So let's get straight to it, shall we? The theme of today is political capital. It's a concept that we've kind of mentioned in passing and in reference to various events and scandals and difficulties and whatnot in the past. And I think it's good to kind of focus on it throughout this episode. We are referring, of course, to Nadim Zahawi, uh, I think, first and foremost, as an example, perhaps, of where political capital is draining from the Prime Minister, from Rishi Sunak. So uh, even as we speak, there are developments on this story. So do sort of keep up to date as the day goes on. But the head of HMRC is currently giving evidence in Parliament and is speaking about the, the Nadim Zahawi case. This is, of course, where he's had to pay millions of pounds in tax, including a penalty. And just by way of clarification, the boss of HMRC says... There are no penalties for innocent errors. If your error was a result of carelessness, then legislation says a penalty applies. So, with that in mind, that's where we're starting from. That's our launch pad. Let's consider Rishi Sunak's political capital and Nadim Zahawi spending it all. Uh, Kirsty, is that is that what's happening? What's your analysis of the Nadim Zahawi situation? How damaging it has been? How damaging it could be? My first thought is one of confusion, really. So I understand Rishi Sunak's point that he made at PMQs yesterday, which is, look, Labour said we need to set up an ethics advisor after, I think, Boris Johnson burned through two ethics advisors in his time who kind of quit in exasperation. And so a, a new ethics advisor was appointed at the back end of last year, Sir Laurie Magnus. So, OK, so you can, and he says you can't have it both ways. If you're going to have an independent ethics advisor, then cases like this should be referred and there should be due process. And on one level, look, fair enough. But on another level, let's just say, for argument's sake, the ethics advisor goes through the due process and says, right, all the declarations that needed to be made were made at the right time and all the kind of propriety and ethics tick boxes are ticked off. What fundamentally changes at the end of that, OK? You've still got a Conservative Party chairman who has been fined by the HMRC for careless tax affairs. Yeah. And we're not talking about, you know, 30 or 40 quid here. We're talking about something in the region of four to five million, depending on which report you read. And mm. we're talking about offshore accounts. We're then talking about a Tory party chairman who has to go into elections in May... <laughs> uh, with that kind of hanging over his head. And we're also talking about a Tory party chairman who isn't a close friend, supporter or ally of Rishi Sunak. Rishi Sunak wasn't his first choice for leader. He wasn't even his second choice for leader. He kind of Rishi Sunak got Zahawi's uh, endorsement, I think, when the man down the street said he didn't want to stand. <laughs> it, you know, So not only are you expending political capital, you're expending political capital on someone who... Uh, is neither, you know, a friend nor, frankly, an ally. I think this is just one of those issues where perhaps there was an expectation that by now, because the story has gone on for so long and because it's become such a distraction from the day-to-day -day business, that Zahari would do the right thing and resign. Mm. But that has not happened. Mm. Just as, a, as another sort of context to this, where, where would you put Rishi Sunak's political capital before the Zahawi scandal accelerated. And I say that because it's been bubbling for months, actually. There was kind of first reporting on this last summer. So where was the Prime Minister's political capital, I don't know, say 10 days ago, two weeks ago? Well, we've spoken about this before in Whitehall Sources, haven't we? When the Prime Minister took up post, he said that in re direct response to what had come before, that he was going to run 
a government where integrity, professionalism and accountability was front and centre. There's been a, a bit of a drip feed from that in any event, first of all, with the reappointment of Suella Braverman mm. after she had uh, breached ministerial rules. That one didn't have that much cut through, particularly it felt a bit bubblish. I think the Dominic Rabb thing, the jury's still out on that, obviously, because that too is part of an investigation about allegations about his behaviour to civil servants in a number of different departments. Not sure that one's got cut through either. Mm. This one, I think, has cut through. And in essence, I think the longer this goes on, the more difficult it becomes for the Prime Minister and the more it becomes about the Prime Minister's judgment about putting him in place in the first place. When, as you say, you know, yeah. there were kind of rumours and allegations. And look, you know, you can argue about, well, you know, let's not be a kangaroo court and rush to judgment mm. without without proof. But you know, it's a bit like Pincher and the and the Boris Johnson sort of scandal. There was enough kind of in the ether to to have a question mark about whether there was a suitability of appointment in the first place. Mm. So yes, I think it's strange. I think the public quite rightly look at Rishi Sunak and think, you know, he's a good and decent man who has inherited an absolute basket case uh, of a government and he's trying to do right by the country uh, the best he can with a, with, mm. a, with a very difficult economic, political governance crisis on his hands. But the longer this goes on, the more this comes about, you know, the public's saying, well, why don't you just fire him? Yeah. Ultimately, he has had a penalty from HR, and, and it doesn't matter what he said when he was appointed to whom and to when to the public. I just think they look at it and think, that's not how I manage my tax affairs, thank you very much. Yeah. It all looks a bit peculiar to me. There has to reach a point, doesn't there, where it's, what have you got to lose by letting him go, by, by accepting his resignation or whatever? And just in, in, the, in the context of, uh, you know, the political capital discussion that we're having, remember Gavin Williamson resigned after those messages, those angry messages about not being um, invited to the Queen's funeral and other issues as well. So that was, that was, a, that was a kind of early days of Rishi Sunak moment too. Frankie, what's your assessment then on political capital? And I think, you know, what it means for when you look at the Prime Minister right now, and I, I think that comparison aspect is really important, actually, and over the last few months, is it depleting? I think it is depleting. I think the concept of political capital for someone like Rishi Sunak is that he didn't start with very much collective political capital, which is how the public sees the Conservative Party, but I think that Kirsty is right that he has individual political capital in the sense that he's not a politician that is, you know, marred in scandal. Obviously, there has been issues in terms of his wife's uh, non-domicile status around her tax. But I think the problem is with this issue with Nadim Zahawi is that clearly Nadim Zahawi has done wrong. Clearly, if this was an ordinary member of the public who had fiddled with their taxes, because let's be frank, this is what it is. It is fiddling with your taxes. Ordinary people don't have a spare four to five million pounds to put in an offshore bank account. They don't know where offshore bank accounts are and they don't have access to the people that would be able to hide that money for them. So what this reveals is that politicians within the Conservative Party are fiddling with the financial system and at a time where taxes have risen, the economy is buckling, and it's harder for people to access the services they need, like the NHS, that they pay for with their taxes. Imagine what it must feel like to hear that a politician, never mind someone who was chancellor, albeit for a very small amount of time, has got round that in a way that ordinary people could never get round things. And I think the concept of political capital in that sense is that, you know, that will upset people, not on a political level about Labour or Conservative. That is about an individual person not playing by the rules. And I think if you check the polling, there is nothing more that the British public hate than feeling like there are people getting away with not playing the rules. This is about law and order. And it's clear to me that Nadim Zahawi will have to resign. Personally, I think he should resign as an MP. In terms of Rishi Sunak burning his political capital, if he'd have acted on this decisively at the start and said, Nadim Zahawi has done wrong, now we know he's no longer Tory party chairman, Nadim Zahawi might have survived as an MP. 
But the longer this goes on, the more doubt it casts on Rishi Sunak and his strength and his ability to act. It also personally makes me question, are there more MPs out there who've been fiddling with their taxes that Rishi Sunak doesn't want to act decisively on Nadim Zahawi for because it will show what else is living in the swamp. The longer this goes on for, the worse it will be for Rishi Sunak. Mm. And, you know, five hours yesterday for the Prime Minister's spokesperson to confirm that the Prime Minister has never received a fixed penalty notice from HMRC. Five hours. That's, that's a long time. And that time now, now that I work as a press officer, if it took me five hours to confirm a really seriously important question about whether my boss has ever received a fixed penalty notice from HMRC, like, Kirsty, have you ever received a fixed penalty notice from HMRC? Very quickly, you could probably say yes or no. The fact that it took five hours suggests that there was some background digging there. And again, it all adds well, to the Hang on, it's not a conspiracy, though, is it? That, I mean, that's not a conspiracy to get that, that fact straight and to understand, you know, taxes are a private thing and that's, you know, that's part of what makes this quite difficult. I, d- I don't think that's what the, hang- the hold-up was, Frankie. Mm. My gut instinct tells me the hold-up was was a discussion about whether saying yes or no to that was a kind of thin end of a wedgery of commenting on tax affairs, which are... But my private point is matters. That the, the public, I'm not suggesting that I think that that five hour delay was about making sure whether he has or not. I'm sure Rishi Sunak knows very quickly whether he has or he hasn't. But the delay, the delay in sacking Nadim Zahawi, the delay in answering those questions, the ordinary members of the public are not former spads and advisors. They don't have the inner workings in their head of thinking about when it's good to burn your political capital, they will just respond to that. And what I'm seeing is, in terms of this cut-through, is that people don't think it's fair and they're feeling like there is not truth coming out of the Prime Minister when it comes to these issues of, of tax and finance. And the Tory party has got a record for this, unfortunately, and it's not getting any better. Isn't there something to consider here in that Nadim Zahawi uh, has paid the penalty... He has paid the tax that was due, and so actually he has been punished, in inverted commas, for what he did wrong. And that's it. No. I, I, don't, I really don't know how we can argue that somebody who has been found guilty of trying to squirrel away four to five million pounds in an offshore account should be anywhere near public lawmaking. As a point of fact, tax avoidance is not illegal. Yeah. Tax, tax evasion is illegal, but tax avoidance... Is this not tax evasion by no. putting money away? No, no. It, is, it is tax... It is not. And I think it's very clear... For, we need to be very clear here that tax avoidance is not illegal. And if I could just pull you up on one other point, Rishi Sunak is truthful in this... To his own cost, actually, because obviously he stood at the dispatch box last week and said, Mm. the chairman has said all that needs to be said about this matter and I consider it to be closed and has had to go back to the dispatch box this week and say, actually, you know, new stuff has come to light. So he is trying the the best that he can to navigate his way through what is a fast evolving situation where clearly he hasn't been uh, kept abreast of all the facts when he should have been, and has quite rightly, by the way, then decided that the most important thing to do is to have an inquiry to get to the basis of all the facts. So, again, I was reading the Seb Payne book, again and again and again in the Seb Payne book, one of the big mistakes of... Uh, one of the many big mistakes of the Boris Johnson administration was when issues came up, there wasn't an immediate decision mm. to have an inquiry to discover what the basic facts are of... Who said what to whom and who knew what when? Well, and that is what is that is what the Prime Minister is trying to do now, and, and, and fair enough. I think the moral argument you're making, Frankie, is perfectly valid, isn't it, in terms of whether somebody who behaves in this way, uh, while, incidentally, they are the Chancellor, um, of course, let's remember a bit of the timeline in all of this, whether that is acceptable is, is up for debate. But I think in terms of kind of the legal side of it, it is just something to be cautious of. Yeah, um, no, of course, but that's not about, you know, political capital is about how people perceive it. What he did was wrong and he has received a fixed penalty notice because he wasn't allowed to do what he did. He might have paid the fine, but in terms of political capital, mm. it's been burnt. He's no longer trustworthy. Just on kind of political capital... 
and uh, Zahawi and Rishi Sunak, and indeed, Kirsty, what you were saying about the Boris Johnson days, the Boris Johnson era, is history repeating itself here? Does it feel like we're in this awful vortex of not having information when we need it, and messaging being wrong, and then having to be clarified, and nobody's quite sure what's going on. All, all the while, it's murky, it doesn't feel good, and, and the political capital is draining. That, look, that, that is the mistake that was made here, I think, was that the Prime Minister took what he was told by the Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, at face value. Now, that, as it turns out, was a mistake. Mm. And what should have happened last week, before he came to the dispatch box and said, look, it's all out there, there's nothing more to say about this, nothing to see, folks, he should have been bang sure that that was right. There's an issue here about the role of Simon Case and whether Simon Case was asking the right questions. And if you're going to learn the lessons of history, not least recent history, very recent history, the first thing you do when there is any issue about propriety and confusion around timelines around one of your ministers, you should order an inquiry immediately to establish exactly what the facts are, regardless of what the outcome of that is, you need to know what the facts are. And I think that was a that was a big mistake last last week, was to accept that everything that was out there was known. And of course, then you've got the Sunday newspapers and a whole bunch of you know of other stuff came to light. It's been like pulling teeth trying to get, you know, the, the truth out of this. I mean, if you go on the rules of crisis comms, which is kind of tell it all and tell it quickly, yeah. this has been, this has literally been like pulling teeth. And so the first thing he should have done, the Prime Minister should have done, was was issue an inquiry to establish what the facts were before he put his integrity on the line by standing in front of... And I'm not... This was a complete, like, inadverted misleading of the House, but before he stood there and put his capital on the line to say, this is all done, nothing to see here. Mm. That is where the mistake was made. I mean, yes, we've got a, an inquiry now, but it was, a, it was a week too late. And there's a difficulty with these things. You know, what do you do when, frankly, your best way out of this is for the person involved to resign? And then they don't. I am reminded of 2017, I think it was, Theresa Maves, then Prime Minister, when I was working at Number 10, and Damien Green, um, who you recall, I think was the first Secretary of State mm-hmm. in the Cabinet Office, the stories resurfaced about a raid on his office when he was Shadow Home Secretary or Home, Home Office Minister, where porn was found on his computer in, in his parliamentary office. The issue at hand here was not the porn, which he was always clear he didn't download, nor did he watch. But it was the statements that were put out surrounding that event, which led to an investigation by the then Cabinet Secretary, Jeremy Hayward, which were found to be, and I quote, kind of inaccurate and misleading. There are two points about being in Cabinet or being a minister. One is the Nolan Seven Principles of Public Life, right? And the other, obviously, is the Ministerial Code. Both for very obvious reasons, hold ministers to extremely high standards. Mm. And Frankie is right about talking about perception because one of the issues about a ministerial code is not just a breach, but whether it's perceived to be a breach. Exactly. So in other words, if it kind of doesn't pass the smell test, that in itself is a breach. And it is right and proper that we hold our cabinet ministers to, to, to the highest standards, higher standards than, than I or you would be held to. So actually, we had a situation there where there was no kind of original crime, as it were, but the statements were seen to be inaccurate and misleading. There was an expectation that Damien Green would, would was resign. He, he dug in. This was very complicated and difficult for the Prime Minister. This was a very close friend, a, a great ally and supporter at the, around the Cabinet table, We had already lost uh, the then Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon, was forced to resign in the kind of fallout from Sexminster. I think the former Home Secretary, Priti Patel, had been forced to resign due to being economical with the actuality, I think, about a trip to Israel. I remember that. Do you remember that great flight back where we all charted the first time? The first time we charted a a cabinet minister coming back on a plane, Uh, not the last, but certainly the the first. No, 
so we'd already <laughs> lost two, and we were in a, you know, we were in a kind of parlous kind of hanging on by our fingernails government, and it was very difficult for her. But I think we were all of a mind that when the gig's up, it's up, mm-hmm. and it and it wasn't a tenable position. And of course, when Jeremy Hayward's uh, fine news came back, Damien Green had no choice but to resign. And I just think, you know, if we all three of us sit here now and look at the Zahawi case, even if the ethics advisor comes back and says all the right things were followed, does it not feel (laughs) that this position is not tenable? Yeah, Uh, I was saying earlier, but it also reminds me as well. And I'm, you know, it's not just the conservatives that have this problem. It reminds me of, you know, the 2017 intake. And we refer to this in the Labour Party because it basically because of that snap election, the selections that were conducted for some of the parliamentary candidates were quick, shall we say the least. And it meant that we had some interesting people. Fiona Onasanya. And I remember being in Lotto when this was all going down. She was a Labour Party MP in Peterborough. And the story started that there was an issue with the fact that she'd been given a speeding ticket and she said that she wasn't driving the car. Basically, suspicion was cast on the fact that Fiona Onasanya said that she wasn't driving the car, so therefore the speeding ticket wasn't for her. And she was told by Lotto, by the political secretary at the time, you have to resign. You've burnt your own political capital and now you're starting to burn through you know, the leader of the Labour Party's political capital as well. But it comes back to this thing, which is that how far do you take it in terms of telling someone to resign? Because we see this all the time with, you know, government ministers when they're essentially told that they need to resign and they're given that sort of grace period where you can resign yourself and write your letter and kind of set out your resignation on your own terms, Mm. even though it's clear that you've been pushed. But, you know, Fiona Onasanya, when this was happening, she wasn't taking any of those nudges. And in the end, we I think we had to put through a recall petition to make her resign. But by the end of that process, a huge amount of political capital had been burned. So, again, with the Zahawi thing, you know, the MPs almost don't respect the fact that by their own actions and their refusals to do the right thing, they burn a huge amount of political capital for their parties. A lot of it is about reputation. As we've said, it's about perception. It's about reputational damage to a party, to a government, to individuals as well. Uh, Before the end of the podcast, we're going to consider what you do to actually store up political capital. Since we're talking so much about it burning, um, given crises and scandals and difficulties, what can you do to actually store it up? Where does it come from in the first place? Uh, We'll be right back to discuss that after this. We are so glad to be here and we are so grateful for our wonderful sponsor. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with Resident Hotels. Their fantastic team of resident insiders are waiting for you at their ideal city centre locations in London and Liverpool. The locations are hand-picked. Insiders are specifically trained to give you all the info you could possibly need for your stay, including secret tips and tricks of the local neighbourhood. They sound a bit like sources, you might say. It's magic moments galore during your stay. And by the way, TripAdvisor backs us up on this. The Resident Hotel Liverpool is number one. Covent Garden in London is number one. Kensington, Soho and Victoria in London are all in the top 30. Here's what Nicholas says in his review. We found our room very spacious. The Nespresso machine and mini fridge was a lifesaver, as I really need my morning coffee with real milk to get going. The staff were very friendly and helpful. Sold. Click residenthotels.com to book your stay at one of the resident hotels, making Whitehall Sources possible. This is Whitehall Sources. Thanks for being with us today. Make sure you follow the podcast, subscribe to the podcast. And do you know what you could do this week, actually, as something a little bit different, is you could share a link to the podcast with one of your best friends. What a great thing to do. Imagine that. And we would double the number of people who are part of the podcast, which would be wonderful. Uh, So share a link for us. That would be lovely. Leave a review if you like as well. That'd be very nice. Um, And do join our mailing list as well. Whitehallsources.com forward slash 
mailing list. If you'd like to email us anytime, the email address is hello at whitehallsources.com. Today, the focus of our podcast is political capital, that reputation, that ability to function and manoeuvre as a politician, as a prime minister, as a leader of the opposition, potentially as well. When is the right time to fire someone? Uh, when is the right time to perhaps accept their resignation? Kirsty, I think we've, we've spoken about uh, just how to consider somebody's departure, I suppose, frankly, you know, when, when it's getting to the point that they just need to go. But I think crucially also we should consider how you, how you get political capital in the first place. Where does that come from? In the first instance, it comes from a mandate from the electorate. Obviously, the strongest power base that any prime minister will have will be from having been voted in mm. by the electorate and the strength of the voting determines the levels of, of power that they think that they can have. I think we saw under Boris Johnson's uh, reign how quickly... <laughs> You can, you know, burn your way through that, through a series of your own actions. It's almost like a, a sand timer. The minute that you are elected, that starts to run out and it drains out quickly or it drains out slowly depending on your actions going forward. I think uh, the second way you build it up is to say what you mean and do what you say. So if you look at, you know, the start of this year, the Prime Minister announced five pledges, if you like. The people's priorities, yeah. which is a bit of a cheesy phrase, <laughs> but OK, it's stuck in my head. Um, now, we can all argue about whether these are slightly underwhelming pledges. They are all eminently achievable, but that is part of the point of it. You know, regardless of all the other things going on, all the other chaos... This is my covenant to you, the public. I will do this, and by the end of the year, you can hold me to account for that. Mm. So I think that is a, a is another way that you you do that. Um, and I think the third way for me, I never really sort of thought about this until I actually worked in Number Ten. You know, one of the marks of being a good leader is to take decisions, mm. preferably the right ones, <laughs> yes. and make the right judgment calls. You heard again and again and again, like Team Boris say, oh, you get the big calls right, because all the other calls he seemed to get wrong. So, you know, we had a big kind of win on Ukraine and a big win on vaccines and a big win on Brexit, and they just they sat on the pockets of those, you know. Never mind the small stuff, look at the big stuff, we've got the big wins right. So I think taking the right decisions obviously matters, but, but basically taking decisions full stop. I mean... One of the more interesting analogies that arose during the Boris time was, was from Don Cummings. Weirdly, again, a person that Boris Johnson burned an enormous amount mm. of his own personal capital defending. Uh, again, curiously, for a, for a guy who you know wasn't a great ally of Boris Johnson's. But he used to call Boris Johnson a shopping trolley, you know, because he'd go in one direction and he'd go in another. And his just ability to sort of set out a clear vision, a clear sense of direction and head towards that was incredibly problematic, which is why you had this kind of impression of like an absolutely kind of dysfunctional number 10. So I think your mandate comes from your election. It then comes from a clear set of, of pledges. And then it comes from the ability to take the right decisions and make, frankly, more right calls than wrong calls. Nice. That is a really helpful analysis. And so, Frankie, to you, because if Keir Starmer is a prime minister in waiting, what work does he have to do now to walk, other than get elected, but what can he be doing now so that he can, in theory, walk up Downing Street as prime minister with political capital in the bank? Is there anything, any work that you can identify that he should be doing? Well, I think given the Zahawi thing, he needs to have somebody, you know, scrupulously going through his MPs and making sure there aren't any skeletons in the closet that will quickly burn the political capital that he has. I mean, interestingly, when the Westminster account story came out, which was that joint investigation between Sky and Tortoise, it was actually David Lammy, my MP, as I sit here in North London, um, who was one of the top MPs for having you know, huge amounts, again, legal, of extra income. And it's those kind of things that I think, again, it's about the public perception that although legal and, you know, justified, many people have second jobs and extra income, 
will start to question how effective MPs are in Parliament if they're also off earning money doing different things. So mm. I think that kind of, I don't know, MOT, if you like, of the Parliamentary Labour Party to make sure that nobody's got anything, you know, that you wouldn't want coming out. I mean, the interesting thing is that when you stand as a candidate for the Labour Party, they kind of assess your political capital and will ask you, is there anything in your background that could cause problems if you're elected? And I wonder if it's interesting to see who tells the truth in those conversations and who maybe doesn't say anything. But again, in terms of the political capital conversation, the mm. Labour whips will have a huge role in this because they will have lots of interesting facts about their own MPs as political capital for Keir Starmer. I mean, the role of the whip is to know what's going on. It's interesting to see that this week there was a story that came out that said Keir Starmer, I think this was in The Times, is looking for a senior ex or current civil servant to be his new chief of staff. Mm. And that is about the fact that they recognise in terms of their political capital, you know, the Labour Party doesn't have very much government experience because it's been so long since it was in government. So his office are looking for someone who has the political capital of knowing how the civil service works to bolster them because they've recognized that that is a weakness. Now, personally, I think that's a very good strategy because knowing where your weaknesses lie shows that you really are preparing for government. You know where your strengths are. And a key part of this story was that he wanted this person to come in and tell him based on the skills that his office has in Lotto, but also his shadow cabinet ministers what they should be doing on day one yeah. to maximise what they can do within their first few months in government. In terms of his individual political capital, and Kirsty, I'd be interested to see what you think, I still don't think Keir Starmer has enough of an individual personality to have political capital based on him as an individual. Um, yeah, it, uh, funnily enough, I was thinking about personal brand while you were yeah. talking. You know, and And actually, there's a... There's a similar but slightly distinct kind of personal brand difference between the two of them. I mean, I think the Prime Minister's personal brand is one of, you know, decent guy trying to do the right thing in right ridiculously difficult circumstances. And Keir Starmer's is one of, you know, Mr Integrity, which is why, of course, the Prime Minister keeps on bringing up the fact that Keir Starmer remained silent and sat next to Jeremy Corbyn through four years of anti-Semitism running rife through the Labour Party because it chips away at Keir Starmer's personal integrity brand. That's why they keep on bringing that up. I'd love to, to, to do some focus groups on how they're both perceived right now because I keep there's a sort of head boy, head teacher kind of yeah. vibe that I keep on on getting on this. But but it's it is as dangerous for Keir Starmer as it as it was for Rishi Sunak in that sense, because Rishi Sunak, obviously given the inheritance that he had, had to talk about restoration of uh, professionalism, integrity and accountability. How could he not, after the Boris Johnson uh, and the kind of disastrous kind of Liz Truss reign, Keir Starmer too, if he gets elected, will have to talk about integrity accountability and professionalism because mm. of 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 the inheritance you know of what has what has come before with all the kind of consequential hosses to fortunes that that brings for him too so i think you're right i would be doing some insane amounts of due diligence right now but um you know sometimes these things just flare up out of nowhere and you are more high bound in terms of of how quickly you can cauterize a problem like this by things that are outside your you know your control sometimes which is if somebody won't do the right thing and resign and it drags on and on and on and on and on and becomes a huge distraction it cu it cuts through to the public and then it hurts you know you as well as as the party around you it's always interesting to, to just observe behaviour in this because we've mentioned Rishi Sunak's pledge to be a, you know, a government of accountability and integrity. And I remember us discussing on the podcast around that time, Kirsty, I think it was Oscar actually who flagged it. You know, when you make that promise, actually it's a very difficult one to then keep. And that is largely because of the behaviour of other people. <laughs> you know, you can, you can go in with the best intentions, but then you've got to respond in situations like this, which, which really tarnish that as a brand. 
Of course, and, and this is what did for John Major's government yeah. because he yeah. made a he made a kind of family values morality kind of centerpiece of of his own leadership, and <laughs> it was just open season for the press to Absolutely. go after everybody and anybody within the Conservative Party that you know, and there was quite a lot of rich fodder I seem to remember. <laughs> yes, so, <there> was. <laughs> you, you know, uh, but you know, I don't know if you are a man like Rishi Sunak who is a good decent man of great integrity and morals and you have inherited what you've inherited how can you do other than stand on the steps of downing street and promise the restoration Mm. of integrity and decency how how could you do other than that and to be fair to him if labor are going to demand the restoration of an ethics advisor quite rightly by the way by labor i'm not disputing that then when you've got one in place you know rather than just rush to kind of kangaroo courtism you should allow that man to do his job. Now, that has an unfortunate sort of side effect for Rishi of draining away and distracting from his party. But my guess is they probably thought, you know, Zahai would have resigned yeah. by now. Yes. Can I throw a grenade in here? Because oh, gosh. Because the name that is bandied around a lot of these integrity stories at the moment in Westminster, but it's not much touched on. Simon Case. Yes, so Simon Case is an interesting case uh, wallpaper gate party gate uh, these scandals now he has been at the heart of it all actually as the cabinet secretary he's a, he's a fascinating character to consider in all of this because because in theory you would tend to think that somebody in that role wouldn't be as much of a household name as simon case is perhaps becoming and does that does that tell us quite a lot do we think if you cast our minds back to party gate Simon Case was involved in a lot of the investigations about Partygate. And there well, were didn't really he have to recuse himself at one point as well from being involved because he walked through a walked through a gathering? Exactly. But it was a lot of junior staff. He was party adjacent. Party <laughs> adjacent. But his name keeps coming up, and obviously we've got this story now going on about the BBC chairman and the nine hundred grand, is it? Eight hundred. Kind of, 800 grand. But Simon Case's name is involved in that story as well. So, Kirsty, I mean, when you're a cabinet secretary, do, do you have your own political capital to burn? Has Simon Case ran out of his own, I suppose, civil service capital? Yeah, look, I, d- I don't know Simon Case. I've never met Simon Case. I have been increasingly surprised, let's put it this way, by his ability to fly under the radar over the last two or three years on a number of eye-raising matters. I suspect that uh, his luck might have run out on that um, and I would anticipate probably uh, quite a few, shall we say, profile pieces uh, on Simon Case in the next few days. Where that leaves him after that, you know, I don't know. Mm. You know, the Cabinet Secretary is an incredibly powerful position if cabinet ministers are held to the highest standards, then cabinet secretaries are held to higher standards too. I mean, the Civil Service Code of Conduct has got the Nolan principles of public life right at its heart. So let's wait and see what sort of shakes out of the tree of the Simon case. But I agree, it's um, you know, it's a name that has sort of bubbled under all of these stories mm. for quite some time and, and makes me raise an eyebrow. Just on Simon Case then, actually, a couple of interesting notes just um, from today, from Thursday, uh, the 26th, as we're recording this. Uh, Matt Charlie, my Times Radio friend and colleague, has been speaking to Gus O'Donnell, who was Cabinet Secretary under Tony Blair, Gordon Brown and David Cameron. And he's actually really sort of gone on the defensive of Simon Case, I think it's fair to say. Let's not try and fob this off somewhere else, he says. There are ministers evading taxes, ministers doing things that they shouldn't have done, and that's where the responsibility and accountability lies. So that's it. If you happen to be cabinet secretary while you've got a set of ministers behaving badly, it can be very difficult. Simon's having it really tough, but we should concentrate on the fact that the reason he's having it tough is because ministers, or as the allegations suggest, uh, as the allegations suggest, have behaved badly. And we'll see when the investigations come up whether that's true or not. So that's just an interesting uh, little note from a former... Always, Lady doth protest 
too much. Well, I was about to say it's always good to have God on your side, um, which, is, <laughs> which is what obviously everyone used to call Gusto Donald. I never realised that. It makes perfect sense, of course, but I didn't realise that was an actual an actual thing. Uh, and just a final one on this as well, uh, just to, on, on Zahawi, um, the ethics advisor, Sir Laurie Magnus, will be doing what we understand to be quite a rapid inquiry, actually. The Times reports that we should have the detail of it back within about three weeks. Um, so, you know, as rapid things go, it's perhaps not as quick as you might hope, but uh, within three weeks, we should have an answer. Uh, right, a slight change of tack, because in other news today, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg is getting his own show on GB News, yet more reasons to avoid that particular channel. And something else I want to mention, um, the away day, just as a, as a brief sort of concluding uh, few thoughts on the Chequers away day, which I'm just quite fascinated by. So uh, the Prime Minister has taken the Cabinet away to Chequers, um, his lovely countryside mansion. Uh, strategist Isaac Levido is going to be there to set out what is being described as a potential narrow path to victory for the Conservatives. Nadim Zahawi will also be there. Um, I'm just so fascinated by this concept of, of all of these grown-ups getting together in Buckinghamshire uh, to, I don't know, do icebreaker games and decide how to win an election, Kirsty. <laughs> I'm just quite intrigued. I once did a, a away day with the civil service where we had to, and I kid you not, oh, no. make landmark uh, London uh, buildings out of marshmallows and spaghetti. <laughs> I bet you um, love that, Kirsty. And it took everything I had not to just walk around stomping all over, like, you know, the Tower of London and... <laughs> Uh, and I had to, like, legit have a straight face and judge these things. Um, yeah, wow. Uh, like, not, no, not all away days are like that. Like, the point of away... I mean, honestly, the, the, the point of away days, um, uh, particularly for, for number 10, is to get away from number 10, yeah. where it's quite small, claustrophobic. People will walk in all the time and go, oh, can I just, this is important. You need to take this call. This has happened, that has happened. So actually, whilst I'm not a ginormous fan of the away day, <laughs> there is a there is a huge point to it for Downing Street because so often your ability to sort of just block out a bit of time and focus on a particular subject will just get interrupted again and again and again by the process, the endless process of government. So it makes sense for that. And and actually, you know, my most interesting point about this is that I don't think I've spoken to a single pollster that doesn't believe there isn't still a narrow path to victory really? for the Conservatives, which, when you take everything in the round, is extraordinary. Yeah. Um, uh, and I mean, really extraordinary, but, but nevertheless, every single pollster I've spoken to thinks that there is still a path through. Mm. And I think, you know, it is back to the point about, uh, you know, personal brands. I just think people aren't sold on Starmer. Yeah. I mean, I, I do agree with that. And it comes up a Does lot. Does he need an away the... day, Frankie? Does, does Keir Starmer need to disappear somewhere with his team and... Some marshmallow and, and some spaghetti. Marshmallows. Yeah, build a strategy out of marshmallows. Maybe. I mean, it reminds me of um, an away day that I went on that was in Quorn. Um, I didn't even know that Quorn was a place. Um, I'm from the north, but Quorn is near Leicester. And I think it's got something to do with corn, the vegetarian meat substitute, but who knows? Anyway, <laughs> we all traipse on the train from London to corn for this away day. Corn. And at the time, there was, how can I put this delicately? Um, there was a split in Lotto. Um, there was, that doesn't sound likely. No, shocking, shocking. <laughs> wild um, allegation. It wasn't, even, wasn't even based around factional things which is the it was the people's front of judea getting crossed with the judean people's front again wasn't it <laughs> well i mean it's similar to the conservative party which is that inevitably <laughs> in a high tension environment you will inevitably have camps that form within offices and those camps are all based around power and power dynamics and who has the ear of the leader and who doesn't and blah 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 anyway in the midst of the height of that shall we say, incident that was ongoing for quite a long time. We all got shipped off to Quorn for some sort of like, I, I don't know, bonding activity, which 
clearly was not going to do anything given that the reasons why there was these splits was because of serious politics. And there are often moments where people say to me, you know, is it like the thick of it mm. working? And I honestly, my answer is, it is... Your answer worse. is yes and who? No, <laughs> my answer is, it's worse because it's real. You couldn't write some of the stuff that goes on. So we get shipped off to corn <laughs> and sit around in a circle. And it reminds me of that scene in the thick of it, actually, where they're doing the brainstorming. Mm. What does Peter Mannion say? Am I a solid and sensible concept? Because they're playing headbands. And they, what have they put on his head? Well, this was in the thought camp, wasn't it? And, you know, yeah. they were coming up with suggestions like, let's do away with computers. And yeah, then they all had my... to agree with them. It was a safe space. Yes and ho is what they had to say. It. Yeah, and... yeah, yeah. And my away day was like that. I, I can't tell you what went down at this away day. Oh, go on. You can tell us something. All I can say is that somebody left in a taxi from Quorn, never to return to the office again. Really? They were alive. I mean, it wasn't like a murder was committed, <laughs> but we'd gone on a team bonding exercise and returned with one less team member. Somebody was fired on a team bonding away day. I can't, I can't comment on whether somebody was fired or not. Somebody stopped working for the leader of the opposition as the result of a bonding away day. I can't tell you what happened, but unfortunately they were given their yes and go. <laughs> I don't know the details, but no. you read I want my bonding a... money back on that one. <laughs> the icebreaker game must have been awful. There are books about it. Oh, right. Read the books. I mean, there's not literally a book that's like, here's what happened at an away day in Corn in 2018. There yeah. were two books about... <laughs> Worst bonding days ever. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I went to this bonding day and all I got was this lousy T-shirt and my people... All I got was this lousy redundancy. (laughs) (laughs) Good grief, that is brutal. I don't know if it could be topped. Marshmallows and spaghetti to make London landmarks and what would appear to be a literal (laughs) firing of somebody on a team bonding day. Well, there we are. (laughs) That's what happens on political away days. (laughs) And that is the insight you always get on Whitehall sources. Um, great. By the way, you were mentioning focus groups, Kirsty, on um, on all of on the narrow path to victory. I just had a little look at James Johnson's um, latest, which is actually for Times Radio. Sorry to be a corporate stooge and all of this, but James Johnson used to do polling, uh, um, focus groups, and polling in for number ten. Was that? I know. Was that, in your, that was in your day. I used to work with James. I, I heart James as much as I heart Chris Mason. <laughs> That's good. Wow, this is like such a loving <laughs> I love page to do this. Do I ever, have I missed an email where I have to say <laughs> something about him? Just always about, so Chris Mason and James Johnson are on our list of loves. That's great. But anyway, his latest focus group on, this is Swing Voters, Four Times Radio. Uh, the three bullet points that he draws out. Disastrous, quote, Tories have gone from Premier League to relegation. Uh, Sunak is professional, but out of touch when it comes to Nadim Zahawi. But they have no love for, quote, Del Boy, Keir Starmer, who has a, quote, face you can't trust. So I think there you are. That's the latest focus group. Um, You can hear that on Matt Charlie's Times radio programme. I'm not paid to say that. Uh, But that's from James Johnson. And actually, very neatly, concludes all that we've been talking about today on Whitehall Sources. Um, Thank you, Kirsty. Thank you, Frankie. Uh, Great to have you both here. We will be back next Thursday in your podcast feed, of course. Make sure you follow and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you haven't already, join our mailing list. You'll get a special mention at the start of next week's episode. Go to whitehallsources.com forward slash mailing list and drop by and say hello on email to us if you want to, if you want to spam us we promise to never spam you but if you want to spam us go for hello at whitehallsources.com is the email address thank you so much for listening we love having you there and we will talk to you next week Hold up. 